Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Steve Martin and Michael Caine are competitors in the Riviera's most profitable business, but with very different styles. Do you have any idea what it feels like to take a woman for 20 bucks? No, I haven't. I'm afraid it's a little out of my class. Can two con men survive in a town really made for one? Really? We find a woman, set a price, and the first man to extract the correct amount from her wins. Wish me luck! Let the contest begin. If I lose, I'll leave. If I win, you leave. To prove once and for all who is the dirtiest, the rottenest. <laughs> Do you feel this? The sleaziest. <laughs> the sneakiest. The phoniest. Thank you, Your Highness. The trickiest. Don't you ever have an emotion that originates above the waist? No! The all-time champion of dirty, rotten scouts. Surely he was no match for you. I'm younger than you, better looking than you, thinner than you. Know your limitations. You are immoral. Steve Martin is the man no woman can resist. Eat your food. It's too late. May I go to the bathroom first? Of course you may. Thank you. And Michael Caine is... Lawrence Jameson. Chips Otto. Doctor. Emil Schaffhausen. And they're both dirty, rotten scoundrels. Do you want the whole world to know? Dirty, rotten scoundrels. You mustn't turn your back on them for a second. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie Dirty Rotten Scoundrels from 1988. The studio was Orion Pictures. The release date was December 14th, 1988. The running time, 110 minutes. The rating is PG. The budget, couldn't find it. Couldn't tell you. My guess is it was probably about maybe 5 to $10 million. So the box office was $42 million, making it the 24th ranked movie of 1988. Now, Rotten Tomatoes gave it 89% fresh from 37 reviews. The critics' consensus is a buoyant, clever update of the conman flick bedtime story with plenty of comedic jousting resulting from a winning chemistry between Michael Caine and Steve Martin. Roger Ebert gave it 3 out of 4 stars, and here's his review. There's something about the very words dirty, rotten scoundrel that makes being one okay. They evoke an earlier age of simpler evils, back before everyone was playing for keeps. And the movie Dirty Rotten Scoundrels evokes a more innocent time in the movies, too. It's a remake of the David Niven comedy Bedtime Story about a roguish Riviera con man bilking rich tourists out of more money than they needed in the first place. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels stars Michael Caine in the Niven role as Lawrence Jameson, a suave, aloof confidence man who seems so noble, so regal, so aloof, that gullible tourists from Nebraska have no difficulty believing he is a king in exile. Steve Martin plays Freddie Benson, a scruffy American who works the lower end of the scam ladder, accepting donations for his allegedly ailing grandmother. They meet on a train, sort of, when Jameson observes Benson pulling his crude routine on a tourist. 
when the slick European discovers that the gauche American is planning to relocate to his home territory, the wealthy Rivera resort town of beaumont sur moore he decides to do anything possible to keep Benson out of that town. Jameson's theory is that bad crooks pollute the water for sophisticated con men like himself. However, Freddy keeps turning up like a bad penny, and finally Jameson decides out of desperation that he must work with him. They do a couple of cons together, and they make a wager of $50,000 on who will be the first to con a rich visiting American, Glenn Headley, so that their pride is at stake, and a lot more than pride, as it turns out. The plot is mostly an excuse for the, a series of bizarre set pieces in which one con man tries to corner the other in an outrageous trap. My favorite sequence came when Kane played an incredibly wealthy aristocrat and saddled Martin with a hapless role of Rubrecht, his brother. Ruprecht is so clumsy that he had to eat with a cork on the end of his fork to prevent eye damage if he stabs himself in the eye, and for added protection, he also wears an eye patch. The plot develops into a series of sting-like cons within cons as the two confidence men surpass themselves in their attempt to outsmart the surprisingly elusive Hedley. Kane goes the high road with, the, with visual and verbal humor. Martin does more pratfalls than in any of his movies since The Jerk, and he has one absolutely inspired scene in a jail cell. He knows the name of only one local citizen who might bail him out, Lawrence Jameson. And as he tries to remember his name, his mind and body undergo the most fearsome contortions. Martin, who seems to be improvising the scene, tries to drag the missing name from his stubborn consciousness one syllable at a time. The plot of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is not as complex as the movie like The Sting, and we can see some of the surprises as soon as they appear on the horizon. But the chemistry between Martin and Kane is fun, and Hedley provides a resilient foil as a woman who looks like a pushover, but somehow never seems to topple. And that's the end of the review. So I'm pretty sure I saw this as a kid uh, on VHS. I didn't see it in the theater. And we're going to cover with my other brother, Brian, at the end of this of my segment. And we'll get into his thoughts and when he first saw the movie. Uh, but this is one that I remembered. And, you know, that was, it was good enough to, to have in my DVD collection. And then Shout Factory, who is by far the best uh, reissue uh, DVD company there is, you know, they have all sorts of extras, the the transfers and, and their prints to Blu-ray are just pristine. And so I highly recommend it's worth the money. If you're if you're a cinephile, it's totally worth it. If, if you're just into uh, movies, but you don't you know, necessarily care about the quality and everything, it is pricey. And pretty much every you know Blu-ray is 25 bucks and up. But if you love movies like I do and you love all the extras, then Shout Factory is the way to go. All right, let's get into the main cast. So, of course, we have Steve Martin, who plays Freddie Benson. And Martin was really in the prime of his career movie-wise in the late 1980s and prior to this film he was a top flight stand-up comedian uh before actually getting to the movies you know like in the mid to late 70s but then once he got into movies it was just all uphill he had the jerk dead men don't wear plaid three amigos little shop of horrors roxanne and planes trains and automobiles before he did dirty rotten scoundrels and he would just continue his success through the 1990s. And you really can't think of comedies of the 80s and 90s and not think of Steve Martin. Michael Caine plays Lawrence Jameson. And since Steve Martin had only been acting for about, you know, 10 years, Caine had been acting since the mid-1950s. He's simply a living legend in film. And I love that he continues to appear in key roles even today. In 1988, his film resume included The Ippocris File, Alfie, The Italian Job, the original, <laughs> Get Carter, the original, Victory with Sylvester Stallone and, and Pele, a soccer movie, Blame It on Rio, 
Hannah and Her Sisters, and Jaws for the Revenge, though I think he'd like to forget that atrocity. As Ebert said, Martin and Kane were perfectly cast to play alongside one another. And the other main character is Glenn Headley, and she plays Janet Colgate, and Headley had been acting since the early 1980s and was married to fellow actor John Malkovich for most of the decade. However, they divorced the same year as this movie. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels would be her most well-known role, though she would have a big part in the 1990 Dick Tracy movie with Warren Beatty, playing his love interest, Tess Trueheart. She would also play Richard Dreyfuss's wife in Mr. Holland's Opus. And sadly, she died in 2017 at the age of 62 of a pulmonary embolism during the filming of the TV series Future Man. The director was Frank Oz, and Oz was probably best known for his work as a puppeteer and voice of many of the Muppet characters like Miss Piggy, or Fozzie Bear, Animal, and Sam Eagle. In addition, he is famously the voice of Yoda in the Star Wars films. And so before uh, directing Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, he directed The Dark Crystal, which was kind of a Muppet-type movie, but obviously darker and weirder, (laughs) The Muppets Take Manhattan, and Little Sharp of Horrors. I also first remember seeing him in The Blues Brothers, where he plays the jail attendant who gives back John Belushi's items when he's being released from prison in the beginning of the movie. 7474505B. What wing? Maximum wing, block nine. Standard release. Parole, three out of five, good behavior. Give me a minute. One Timex digital watch broken. One unused prophylactic. One soiled. Boots, black. Belt, black. One black suit jacket. One pair of black suit pants. One hat. Black. One pair of sunglasses. $23.07. Sign here. The screenwriter is Dale Wadner, and prior to Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Warner wrote uh, screenplays for Ruthless People and Blind Date, which was with Bruce Willis and Kim Basinger. Both movies I own and will be future episodes. All right, some background about this movie. David Bowie and Mick Jagger wanted Warner to write a movie for him. But Warner passed because he didn't want to write for two stars, even though it would have been cool to hang out with them. However, he told Bowie of an idea he had that was inspired by a movie he saw as a kid with David Niven and Marlon Brando as two competing gigolos. This, of course, was Bedtime Story from 1964. So about six months pass by and he pitches the idea to Mick Jagger and his production company, but basically because he wanted to meet Mick Jagger. However, he realized that Universal Pictures probably wouldn't give up the rights to the film to have it adapted. So then Paramount called asking if Warner would write the screenplay if Eddie Murphy starred in the film. So Warner decided to go straight to Universal. Universal passed. So Warner wondered if Universal actually had the rights to the film. So you got to remember, this is pre-internet. It's not that easy. So they paid $350 to have a copyright search done and discovered that the film's rights had reverted back to the original writer of Bedtime Story, which was Stanley Shapiro. Warner met with Shapiro and they got along great and they basically struck a deal at lunch on a napkin. Ah, the good old days. 
Wanner then took the pitch to Orion Pictures, and Herbert Ross was the first choice to direct, but the backup was always Frank Oz. Ross dropped out, and Frank Oz was in. Warren Beatty and Tom Cruise was Wanner's original ideal duo. Wanner actually sent the script to Michael Caine, and he liked it and was on board, but the studio didn't necessarily want Caine, they wanted a bigger name. Frank Oz actually wanted Steve Martin to play the Lawrence role, which of course was Michael Caine's role. Then Richard Dreyfuss came in to read, and Dreyfuss assumed that he would be playing the Lawrence role and Steve Martin would be Freddy. Everyone but Frank Oz realized that Steve Martin was the natural buffoon as Freddy. So Frank Oz let Dreyfuss read as Lawrence and Martin could finally read as Freddy, and Frank Oz realized that he was wrong and that Martin was the perfect role as Freddy. They passed on Dreyfus, so Michael Caine was back in action and landed the Lawrence role, and thank goodness he did. Lawner thought the original script in Bedtime Story was a bit too sexist, so he wanted to revive this issue in his version. The test scores for the second showing was the highest in Orion Pictures history. Alright, let's just get into the movie. The movie starts with Michael Caine impersonating a prince of some country, we don't know who it is, and a woman offers him her valuable pearls in order to help his country. And this is the beginning of many swindles that Caine attempts to pull off. So for his next swindle, you get a slow turn to finally see Michael Caine, and it's at a, at a casino, and his mark is none other than Barbara Harris, who plays the character Fanny Eubanks. The game is roulette. He acts like he will try to bet his royal ring which his partner conveniently says loud enough for her to hear. From there, she's hooked. Kane is brilliant with his act, and women fall for his ruse easily. He's charming, and he's debonair, and he runs the scams like a regular business, and he's very wealthy and owns an enormous estate in the French Riviera. All the wealthy widows believe that they are helping his country and gladly hand over money to the quote-unquote freedom fighters with little thought. All right, so Kane decides to head to Zurich to deposit his cash, We are introduced to Steve Martin, which happens to be a great shot as it follows the back of Michael Caine and you think that the shot will stay with Caine. Instead, it keeps going to the door and then when it swings open, out comes Steve Martin on the train that they're standing in. While on the train, Michael Caine sees Steve Martin, who is Freddy, and he sees him hustle a meal out of a woman that is eating alone. Martin's scam is way more crude than what Kane would do, but it's just as effective. Kane is amused and disgusted all at the same time. Good evening, sir. Would you like to see the menu? Oh, yes. Starving. <laughs> really starving. <laughs> Prices. I think I'll just have some water. Water? Yes. Only water, but you seem so hungry. I'm saving my money for something special. My mother. Your mother? Well, she's not really my mother, actually. She's my grandmother, but she raised me. My real parents didn't want me. Oh, I'm sorry. But my grandmother is a wonderful woman. She has a laugh. I can make the birds sing. <laughs> but she's been quite ill lately, and the hospital bills have been adding up. I just want to do my share. It's kind of tough for me because I was never very good with money. I just seem to take whatever the Red Cross pays me and I just give it right back to them. But I am going to help my gram 
She is the one who taught me. It is better to be truthful and good than to not. Waiter? What are you doing? Waiter? Give this man whatever he wants. Oh, I can't let you buy me a meal. Nonsense. I'll have a double turkey sandwich on white, a side order of fries, one of those large knockwares, three bags of potato chips, a chocolate milk, and two beers. Why don't you have a beer? Three beers. Thank you. Eventually, they share a car and the train together, of course, and Kane is reading a paper while Martin reads Mad Magazine. Forgot I had a first-class ticket. <laughs> that bother you? I love to love you in the night. I couldn't help overhearing your conversation in the dining car. My condolences to your grandmother. Huh? Oh! <laughs> oh. Right. Didn't you say she was taken ill? I tell them what they want to hear if it gets me what I want. Rather a shabby trick, isn't it? I can tell you've got a lot to learn about women. Yes, I'm afraid I am a bit naive when it comes to the weaker sex. Freddie Benson. And you are? Lawrence Jameson. You're married, aren't you? You can tell. Listen. We're the weaker sex. Men don't live as long as women. We get more heart attacks, more strokes, more prostate trouble. I say, it's time for a change. I say, let them give us money. Let's live off them for a while. That probably shocks a guy like you, right? Well, it's rather a revolutionary thought. Do you really think it's possible? dining car. She gave me a hundred francs. That's, that's, that's like uh, 20 bucks. Do you have any idea what it feels like to take a woman for 20 bucks? No, I haven't. I'm afraid it's a little out of my class. What? It's too bad. Could have had a blast on the Riviera. Martin seems to always get out of the traps that Kane sets for him, as Kane always wants Martin away from his territory. However, this is Kane's town, and eventually Martin gets thrown in jail after ratting him out to one of the jilted women that he he tried to scam. There's a really funny line where Martin says he was just with another woman, and that the swindled woman was just jealous. Martin says to the police inspector that he's French, and so he should understand. The inspector says yes, to be with a woman is French, to be caught is American. The jail scene was completely improvised by Steve Martin, just as Roger Ebert guessed. I'm telling you, I didn't steal any money from her. She gave it to me. Then she filed this complaint against you, monsieur. She caught me with another woman. Come on, you're French. You understand that? To be with another woman, that is French. To be caught, that is American. All right, what am I going to do? How am I going to get out of here? Well, it's very difficult. The charge is a serious one. And you are a vagrant, an unknown. This, I'm not a vagrant! This is my point! I know somebody here. I met him on a train. His name is... His name is... James... No, his name is... James Josephson. Lord, no, no! James Lawrence! 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 
Lawrence. Lawrence Fells. Lawrence Fangs. Forrest Lawrenceton. Lone. Lars. Lars. L Lawrence. Lawrence Luck. Lawrence. <laughs> His name is James Jessenton. Lawrence Fell. Lawrence Jesterton. Lawrence Jesterton. Lawrence Jemison. Yes! 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 We're like this! So bad luck strikes Kane as he thinks he's rid of Barton and sends him out of Europe on a plane. Unfortunately, Barbara Harris is on the same plane and sees Michael Caine out the window and ends up talking to Steve Martin about the prince and reveals the con, but she didn't know. However, Mike, uh, Steve Martin figured it out. So Martin returns to Kane's home to break the news to him that he's on to him. So, of course, he wants to partner up and the unholy alliance begins. There's a funny line where Kane asks Martin about his education, and Martin says that he majored in metal shop in high school. <laughs> this is when we get a staple of the 80s, and that is the montage. This is, of course, lots of fun as we see Kane transforming Martin into a version of himself. First, they change Martin's wardrobe from American casual to English proper. He puts this awful-looking goop in his hair for a slick-back look. Kane teaches Martin how to walk like he's important. He, uh, he teaches them to prepare bouquet of flowers, proper table manners, and it's pretty much like the male version of Pretty Woman. They play croquet, where Martin pops out from behind a tree and zips up his fly, which of course implies they just took a leak. <laughs> Steve Martin actually came up with this joke. So again, it's a gradual process to get him to become important. The song montage is putting on the Ritz. This is where we get to a hilarious scene and, and arguably one of the most famous scenes of the movie where Kane finally puts Steve Martin into action. This is as Rubrecht, Kane's infantile acting brother. This is vintage Steve Martin in all his ridiculousness. Today, this scene would probably not even be filmed because it would be considered very un-PC. And that's exactly why comedies today are pretty routine and all the same. Nobody wants to offend, so you get crap, basically. Well, no worries. That's what this podcast is all about. We relive the awesomeness of the past because you're not going to get anything original or very funny from today's socially conscious elite. Today's writers think that making every other word a curse word will draw humor. It really doesn't. It basically waters down the comedy of swearing, which is why the scene with Steve Martin going on a curse-filled tirade in planes, trains, and automobiles is so perfect. You don't hear a hint of cursing in that film until that scene, which then makes it stand out, and it's hilarious. If the entire movie had been filled with cursing, the scene wouldn't have worked at all. Everything is better in moderation, folks. All right, back to the movie. Martin's wearing the eye patch at dinner and brings a toy trident with him. He basically has a piece of cork on his fork because that's why he has the eye patch on. The Rubric Dak basically gets the woman to show out the cash without actually wanting to stay with Kane because then they would also have to deal with Rubric. So originally this Rubric scene was supposed to be even darker, where Stu Martin was almost like Quasimodo from the Hunchback of Notre Dame, where he's almost chained up with a long beard and food is stuck in his beard, and then he would hug the woman and mock Humper and... Then when he had was pulled off of her, then he would start humping Michael Caine. <laughs> Martin didn't really think that this was, this was very funny. He didn't like it at all. So Martin tried to show how it wasn't funny and, st and started mimicking basically what he was supposed to do to the writer. The crew saw this and started laughing hysterically. <laughs> so Honor's original vision was eventually used in the Broadway adaptation. 
There's great dramatic effect with the cellar and the door before you actually see Ruprecht, and there's a tire swinging next to his bear. They made it seem more childlike stupid rather than making fun of someone that is, you know, mentally challenged. Though today, again, this would probably still offend everyone, but it's a great scene, and Martin and Kane improvised a lot. They left in a scene where there's a rubber glove and lube because they they thought it might have gone too far, but they decided to keep it in, and it's still hilarious. So the scene where uh, Martin said, you know, asks Michael Kane, hey, may, you know, may I go to the bathroom first, and then says thank you immediately after. That was all improvised by Steve Martin. Eventually, Steve Martin's character gets frustrated for not receiving his cut of the swindles and wants out, much to the delight of Kane. That was kind of his plan all along. Finally, they decide to make a bet. They find a woman and set a price of $50,000, and the first man to get the cash gets to stay in town and take over, and the other must leave and never return. That woman is Glenn Headley, who is Janet Colgate, a soap queen. Headley is introduced by a slow rising of her head from a giant red hat that she was wearing. It's very 1950s. Oz did a great job with the dramatic introductions of the main three. Kane first attempts his tried-and-true uh, roulette wheel scam on Headley, uh, but Martin one-ups him by appearing in a wheelchair as a paralyzed military veteran and squeezes his way between Headley and Kane. Martin loses his bet and pulls Kane's scam as he tries to get the cash for one of his medals <laughs> and then tries to re leave the table. Of course, he can't because his wheelchair won't allow him and Headley falls for a sob story. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Pardon me. Hi. Thank you. Sorry. Excuse me. Thank you. Pardon me, miss. Would you mind placing a bet for me? As you can see, it's terribly difficult for me to reach the table. Sure. What number would you like? The way my luck's been running. Would you pick a number for me? <laughs> Could use all the luck I can get. Gentlemen, if you could advance me a few dollars on this, please. I'm sorry I cannot with you. <laughs> That's fine. Thank you. Excuse me. Monsieur wins again. Listen, maybe I can help you. Just that that was my last chance. Last chance for what? My last chance for an operation. Well, shouldn't the Navy pay for your operation? Oh, it's not for me. It's for my grandmother. I just got word from the hospital that she's in pretty bad shape, and if they don't operate soon, she might. I'm sorry. I don't even know you, and here I am bothering you with my problems.
there's a great intro and reveal of Martin in the wheelchair. The drama kind of adds to the comedy. When Martin struggles to leave and then knocks in the Kane's chair three times, they wanted to possibly edit that, and, and Oz noticed only two, to- two knocks were audible. So timing-wise, according to Oz... Three knocks is what's perfect. So Oz requested Orion to add a third knock, which actually cost $20,000. But in the end, Oz is right. Comedy is such a nuanced art, and something like one less knock is the difference between a decent laugh and a huge laugh. Would an operation help you? No. My problem isn't physical. It's emotional. Really? I'm on six weeks MTL mental trauma leave what happened well I was engaged to a girl back in the states and we loved to dance we wanted to be professionals isn't that silly and we got an opportunity to perform on TV on, on Dance USA and we decided that if we won we'd get married so we went on and we danced, and we won. How <laughs> oh, great. And in the excitement, we got separated. So I went back to the studio, and there they were, naked, dancing. And then they stopped, and they made love right there on the dance floor. Who was she with? Danny Terrio, the host of Dance USA. I'm sorry. In the morning, I woke up and my legs were useless. Numb. Oh my God. I couldn't walk. Oh my God. Well, surely someone can help you. Oh, yeah, there is, but. What? There's this psychiatrist, Dr. Emil Schuffhausen of the Schuffhausen Clinic in Liechtenstein. Why don't you go to him? <laughs> Man, like Schuffhausen is in demand all over the world. He gets astronomical fees. It's just not something I can handle. What do you mean by astronomical? $50,000. That is a lot of money. Freddie, are you okay? Oh, God. They're dancing. Freddie, we are going up to my room right now, right to Dr. Schofhausen. Oh, God! They're dancing! Take me from this place! So Hedley had to keep her eyes uh, closed during the scene where Martin is explaining why he couldn't walk, and she would have started laughing if she looked at Steve Martin, she said. The film kind of definitely reminds you of a classic screwball comedy from the 1940s. Kane and Martin work so well with each other. Uh, this could have worked with Cary Grant or William Powell or even Clark Gable or Peter Sellers or Alec Guinness. The other famous scene is where Kane acts like Dr. Schofhausen and decides to test Martin's paralysis in his legs by tickling his feet, then smacking his legs as hard as possible. And Martin has to remain in character. 
His facial expressions are priceless. The buildup over the leg check scene is tremendous. Martin was wearing uh, prosthetic shins, and the pacing is just amazing, and Kane getting a running start and the anticipating is just tremendous. The back-and-forth scenes between Martin and Kane are hilarious. Kane brings Headley upstairs, knowing Martin can't make it, but then they start dancing once upstairs, and Martin acts like he crawled up the stairs and starts moaning that he can't dance. Then Martin fakes suicide by wheeling down the steps outside of the house for only Headley to see him. Again, this is very 1940s screwball comedy, and this is where Martin's physical comedy really works. We get another great montage scene where Kane acts like if him and Headley do all these fun activities together, it will get Martin inspired to walk. So they play tennis, which of course Kane hits Martin in the head with a ball. They go horseback riding with Martin wheeling in vain far behind and eventually end up in a nightclub dancing. This ends up backfiring on Kane as a group of Navy sailors see Kane mocking Martin. And since he's wearing a military uniform, the Navy guys decide to get rid of Kane for him. Isn't she fabulous? Wouldn't you like to dance with her? What's stopping you? Get out of that chair and dance with the girl. Okay? If you just want to sit there and miss all the fun. <laughs> Oi. Oi, mate. Who's the arsehole? Get up and dance, he says. I like to smack him one. If I could just get her alone, I think I could have a chance. He's always around. I have another idea. It was Love that put him in that chair. Perhaps Love could get him out. Would you mind if I gave you a little kiss? Well, if you think that it would help. Yes, I think it would help, okay? Okay. What right, piece of shit. What do you reckon? Hey, oi. There's a transport plane leaving for Honduras at one o'clock tonight. How'd you like your friend to be on it? For the wheelchair suicide scene down the stairs, it was supposed to be a stunt-coordinated effort uh, where they would rig a pipe almost like a roller coaster, but that would have cost $150,000. So Martin just came up a way to just a plan to just fake it, which was perfect because it was much funnier that way. The scene where Steve Martin finally proves he can walk to Headley didn't really play well to test audiences, and it wasn't getting the laughs they thought it deserved. So they added the 2001 Space Odyssey theme underneath, and the scene just worked better. It's amazing how, li how little music can go a long way. So I noticed there's a scene towards the end where Michael Caine is in the pool and he's talking on a cordless phone. And then you see a giant green circle around his wrist, and I wonder if he was wearing a cheap bracelet at the time. <laughs> There are great plot twists that I won't give away in case you haven't seen this movie, which is why I mentioned the scenes I really enjoy, but it's not everything, and, and then won't give away the main plot of the film. The last half an hour is full of madcap twists that are just terrific, and you just need to see the movie. It's, and as my other brother Brian will say, he'll, he'll kind of vouch for me why this is such a great movie. All right, some fun facts and observations. Uh, again, this is sort of a 1950s vibe to the film. It sort of makes sense, even though the original was directed in the 60s, uh, you still get that 50s vibe, which is cool. You know, whether it be the roulette or mannerisms of Michael Caine. The relationship is on two layers between Caine and Martin. One, it's a cat and mouse between the two men, which is enjoyable for the audience. And the second layer is the two famous actors going head to head, which is unique for film and why the casting of the two actors was so well done. 
So, Steve Martin's character, Freddy, really talks a lot. And as you'll find in human nature, the ones that talk a lot are the ones you really don't have to worry about. It's always the quiet, methodical ones that have it all figured out. They don't just blurt out everything when it comes to their brain. Kane plays that methodically suave character just perfectly. The movie was filmed in Nice and Cannes, among other areas, in the south of France. The version in the U.S. on the beach scene, Martin is posing for pictures with a beautiful woman in a bikini while the woman he conned is watching everything. However, in the international version, the woman is topless. Good old American censors at their finest. Steve Martin would often uh, improvise and come up with amazing bits that fit perfectly in the film. Kane likes to film things in one or two takes, whereas Martin likes to try different things. But they got along great and they were patient with one another and it shows. In Michael Caine's autobiography, the girl dancing next to him in the disco scene is his real-life daughter Natasha. She's the tall girl with straight black hair. Sean Young was offered the role as Janet Colgate, but turned it down to do a movie called The Boost in 1988. Interestingly enough, there is a remake of this film that is coming out in uh, May. I think it's May 10th of 2019, starring Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson. And let's see if my theory of today's movie will keep with the vulgarity above actual comedy. My assumption is, yes, they will, and it will likely bomb, since they won't be able to match the comedy timing of the two legends. I'm sorry, Anne and Rebel, but, you know, there was also a remake, kind of this film with two female leads in 2001, called Heartbreakers with Sigourney Weaver and Jennifer Love Hewitt. If the movie does great, good for them. I just, I don't see it doing well. Because watch Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Just because you change it to have, you know, the the cast be, you know, different doesn't mean it's going to be better. All right, that's all I got. But luckily we have my other brother Brian back to talk about this excellent movie. And let's get into it right now. All right, we're back with my other brother Brian. How you doing? Pretty good. How are you? I am great. And, uh, you know, just like Steve Martin and Michael Caine and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels will be the, the, the gruesome the, twosome in this the, one. The Dirty Rotten Bryans. Right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, DRB. That's our side podcast. <laughs> well, that's, oh, that would be perfect. Yeah. We should do that. When do you think you first saw this? Did you see it in the theater? I saw it in the theater yeah. and when it came out in 88. Oh, yeah. nice. I remember it because uh, my mom took us. It was, uh, I think we were off from school. It was like uh, winter break or something. And we went like kind of to an early show and in the middle of the week and no one was there. I think we might have had the theater to ourselves or almost to ourselves, even though I don't think the movie was, I thought it did pretty well, if I remember correctly. But It I, did, it did. It just it happened did. to be at a, a screening that was empty because people were working or whatever, traveling or whatever. So yeah, um, yeah, we saw it when it came out. And I remember um, seeing the previews for it to come out and I was excited because I was really um well, I still am a Steve Martin fan, so mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, to me, that's always the best when uh, you get the whole movie theater to yourself. <laughs> yeah. Back in the day, I don't remember exactly that, but it was it was darn close to empty. So yeah. So the movie did pretty well. I couldn't find the actual budget, but I can't imagine it was more than maybe ten million. But it made um, at least forty million, so it yeah, did. Yeah. It, it definitely did well. A lot of advertisement for it, and I, yeah. And I, I think we actually we wanted to take my dad to see it, but he can he didn't get to go until it came out. On, he didn't get to see it until it came out on video, but and we that's when I saw it again it. after. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and that's when I saw it too, because at that point, I mean, Steve Martin, he he pretty much was on the rise throughout the eighties, and then kept it going through the through the mid nineties. Yeah. When was the last time you watched it before I I got you to to watch it again? <laughs> uh, it had been a really long time. 
Um, I thought I knew it pretty well, but I had forgotten certain scenes and just some little details from it. So it was great to rewatch it because I, I remember. So my sister and I were really into this movie, and we would like kind of mimic some of the lines, or we'd we quote the movie a lot. Basically, like I wanted to say we what we would imitate the Ruprecht part. Yeah, but we didn't exactly <laughs> imitate them. We did, we just quoted them a lot. <laughs> so, the uh, May I go to the bathroom? Yeah, that and, one especially. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Me. <laughs> Well, as we found out, a lot of the Steve Martin parts was improvised. And uh, yeah, that, I could see that. I didn't, I didn't know that, but I could see that being the case. Well, especially the Rubrek part. I mean, that was that seemed to yeah. be all. And, and then in the jail when, uh, you know, he was trying to figure out what the, what Michael Caine's name was. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably the other my other favorite part of the movie. Yeah, is his scene in yeah the jail. Mike. No, no, Lawrence <laughs> Josephson. And he's like physically contorting himself to it looks like he's being tortured yeah that's pretty yeah that was all improvised which is that's that's what the brilliance of steve martin yeah yeah it was yeah this is kind of his trademark there <laughs> i mean I, they were talking about having other people um be in that role i, I think richard dreyfus read for the michael Caine role yeah i think he was supposed down. to read for the i read that he was supposed to read for steve martin's role and he got confused or maybe he purposely didn't want that and he just right. decided that he was gonna read for michael kane but I, I michael kane's a great casting and i i, I guess it was uh as this is a remake of a david niven and marlon brando movie so i could see michael kane fitting in really nicely like as a you know more modern day david niven yeah very sophisticated even look, i mean even his look in the movie look he looked like david niven you're so. right and i had never seen that movie had, had you ever seen that no original? i didn't i didn't i had never heard of it so I'm curious because from the research I was doing, the screenwriter was saying it was a bit sexist because it, I mean, it was in the '60s, so he kind of yeah. revised it at least for the '80s, and so it'll be I'll be curious to see how they how they revise it even more for the remake. Yeah, that'll be interesting. I, yeah, like I said, I, it was it, it's interesting that um, that they're remaking it again. I guess they made a musical too. So <laughs> right, it's right. got a lot of it's got a lot of legs. I guess it's got a it's got a it's been popular enough to be you know, spun into different different works i guess so yeah yeah and i'm really glad that went with michael kane because uh they him and martin work really well off of each other in this movie yeah i mean they're very kind of opposite so the yeah i mean and michael kane is like he's just super cool and unshakable the whole movie and steve martin's just kind of like a mess <laughs> in some ways right that's right I, I think if i only had if i had one criticism of the movie watching it again um not that i really have it well not, it's not a strong criticism but just having watched it again i i found some of steve martin when he was you know doing some of the cons like he didn't seem as believable as i think maybe he should have been but i didn't like it overall wasn't like it didn't really take away from the movie that much and i i didn't remember it taking away from the movie like when when i watched it the first several times but just this time I happened to notice like some of his, you know, his con later in the movie where he's, you know, in the wheelchair and that, some of that stuff seemed a little like it seemed to like stretching reality a little bit too much that that anyone would have believed him. But at the same time, he was still really funny. And like, the way they keep one upping each other in that that long con that they're trying to play on. Oh, yeah. Like, Colgate is just 
it was great. Well, and, and you bring up a good point because I mean, when I was when I was younger, that those scenes probably didn't bother me. Like, meaning it didn't come off as cheesy. But yeah, as we get older, I think you're totally right about the Steve Martin stuff. But the the wheelchair stuff with the like him like just whipping him with the with the, with the switch. <laughs> so oh, that part man. is great. Yeah, that part is awesome. So <laughs> just... I don't know. If you, I don't know if you know, but I guess they put they had like prosthetics on Steve Martin, so he couldn't feel a thing. So that, that oh, okay. was him. Pure well, he act. was actually getting hit. I didn't know. I didn't oh know yeah. Was... Oh yeah. And uh, <laughs> so I mean the the reaction shots from Steve Martin are just priceless. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that and I think when, when that was definitely from what I heard in the director commentary, they had to put like you know the the glycerin in his eyes because to to kind of get the tears to stream <laughs> right. down. Yeah. The tears of pain. It wasn't. Yeah. It was <laughs> so what were the scenes that you definitely remembered as a kid besides Rubrek that that so, still hold yeah. <laughs> that still Rubrecht, hold up? Right? Um, probably. I remember the the kind of the montage where he's training to become a you know more sophisticated con artist, yes. <laughs> or just to learn to become more sophisticated. Period. I remember the you know the putting on the Ritz kind of thing. And what else? I don't, I just remember thinking that the French French for hair was cool. I'd like to go there someday. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I remember the train where they meet on the train, and he's you know Freddie is doing his kind of like really lowball con routine, and it's just kind of basically. Uh, Michael Caine's kind of smirking at him, just kind of like shaking his head, like this yeah. guy's a complete loser. And then he starts to worry because he's gonna come into his own town. It's like, oh wait, no, I can't have this. He's gonna, he's gonna spoil the the water. We're gonna, <laughs> all the big fish are gonna run away. That's so, right. That's yeah. right. Uh, and I think that's where it works. Where you know he, even though Martin kind of overplays it, you kind of need that. You need that yin and yang between. Uh, yeah. This... Yeah. I mean, they do a good job of making. Steve Martin, an antagonist to Michael Caine, where he kind of keeps like you keep thinking like, oh, yeah, he's going to be dismissed and, you know, shown the door and he gets, you know, thrown in jail and he gets booted out of town and right. he keeps back. So he's got some like resiliency to him. He's got this kind of knack for like making it making something work, even though he's not near, clearly not in the same class as Michael Caine. But no, not at all. So I mean, he's, got... he's a good foil there. I mean, he's a good foil to Michael Caine at first. And then, you know, as they play their big con later in the in the movie, they're good foils for each other. Right. Right. I mean, Caine basically made a, a business out of how good he was at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. did when you first saw the movie, did you see and I'm not going to give it away because I, I don't know if everyone's seen this, but did you see the twist coming? I don't think I did. Mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to remember way back then. I don't think I really got that it, that's what was going to happen. Um, and it was a great twist. It is. And it, yeah, it, you know, it, I've seen it several times since then, so I can't really say, like, yeah, now, it, I mean, parts of it seem more obvious, but not necessarily. I think they I think they did a really good job hiding the, the twist. So. Yeah, and I think... Um... Movies like that, they still hold up because then every time you watch it, you're trying to find the little subtle signs, almost like the yeah, universe. yeah. So yeah, I don't. I think and um, yeah, I don't. I think the all the supporting cast is really good. I mean, Glenn Headley, mm-hmm. Eddie, it's Headley, yeah, she's really good as the as the mark for their big con. So mm-hmm. I, she was in other things like uh, well, she was on ER for a while, and then she was, did. Uh, Dick Tracy, I think. Yeah, and, she like, was uh, Tess Trueheart. Yeah, sadly, she I guess she just passed away a couple years ago, too. That, yeah. yeah. She was great. So, And I think that helped with that role. I mean, it, it helped to having an actress that, that was that good for that, that role because they needed someone who was really believable as you know in her part. So The, the soap queen. Soap queen, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
So if you had to choose between Three Amigos and Dirty Run Scoundrels, what would you go with? Because I know you love Three Amigos. Uh, I think Three Amigos is probably my personal favorite of the two, but only by a small margin. And I would say that uh, Dirty Run Scoundrels has broader appeal, I would mm. think. Especially yeah. because I don't see them three, remaking Three Amigos anytime soon. But Actually, I kind of could see them doing well, it the way they, it is now. Maybe they would, but I think that the Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, I mean, it's already, you know, like it was a remake itself. And right. it, I mean, the story, I think, I think any kind of like heist movie, con movies, like those kind of, if you like those kinds of movies, if you like the sting and any, or, you know, a sting with like comedic twists. And I think it's, just, yeah, that's, I funny. would recommend that more to, to the wider audience. Uh-huh. I think if you're, if you're just really into Steve Martin and Chevy Chase and um, Martin Short, though, and, and, and they're, uh, being their silliest, then, Three amigos. <laughs> it's funny you brought up the stink because I always like to read if if they're available, like at the Roger Ebert reviews, and he totally mentioned basically the sting in his review about dirty rotten scoundrels because like it that. is it is like that yeah and this thing has some lighter lighter moments too I and mean, it's kind of and it's sort of funny the way it all plays out in the end too but in the same way kind of like oceans 11 is you know it's kind of like it you know the big the big con and it's kind of like a you know a happy ending yeah i don't know i think i think if you're into con you know con movies or heist movies that you know dirty rotten scoundrels is going to be your your pick but Oh no, I agree with I'm that. I'm always going to pick Three Amigos because <laughs> it's just how I have a soft spot in my heart for it. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot here. So we know Three Amigos is going to be your favorite Steve Martin movie. Give me your other four, not necessarily any order, but oh, four four best Steve Martin movies that aren't Three Amigos. You know, I was reading about The Jerk because I, I had seen it so long ago and I barely even remember it, so I have to watch that movie again. We'll uh, definitely be doing that one because it's that's one of my favorite Steve Martin yeah, movies. Yeah, um, let's see. For some reason, it was on cable a lot. Um, was My Blue Heaven. Have you seen oh, that? Oh, yeah. Movie? Yeah, with um, Rick Rick Moranis? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I really like him in that. He plays a gangster who's in, um, who's in witness protection and he's really kind of bad at it. He sticks out like a sore thumb and... <laughs> There's just all these hijinks that ensue for him, you know, living this life on the kind of hiding out from the mob. I'd pick that as one of my favorites. Let's see. Roxanne was really good. Yes. Which is another remake. Yeah, that was good. Let's see. Um, there's some of his like more dramatic roles. Um, oh, he was good in Bowfinger. Yes, that's that an was underrated good. one with Eddie yeah. Murphy. Sorry, I'm reading through IMDb now. So. <laughs> well, then the other <laughs> remake. Yeah, Shop Girl was good. That was kind of just like a more of a like a romantic comedy, a romantic. Re- yeah. They redid uh, Father of the Bride. Oh yeah, Father. He was great in that. Actually. Yeah. Like, he was very believable as a father. You know, <laughs> worried about his daughter's wedding. That was it was good. Um, I think that would yeah that would be up there. Uh, Dead Man Don't Wear Plaid. No, I haven't seen that one. Well, if you like film noir, it's basically a spoof on film noir, and they splice in all the classic film noir movies, so it kind of goes in sync. So you'll see like Bogart in a film, and yeah, it's okay. like Steve Martin's talking to him. I have to check that one out. I'm trying to think of what other ones that I've seen that he's... Uh, My huh. guilty pleasure one is House Sitter with Goldie Hawn. <laughs> oh, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, that's... that's a, Sergeant, no, yeah, Sergeant Bill Cutter was pretty bad. Yeah, that one was bad. <laughs> L.A. Story, uh, I think I, think I would like that more if I yeah. saw that again. I, I think I saw it kind of when it came out, and I was just kind of, it was so-so. I, I liked parts of it a lot and parts mm-hmm. of it I didn't care for. Oh, oh God, I can't believe I didn't, I didn't say this sooner. Plane, trains, planes, trains, and automobiles. Of course, I was <laughs> waiting for you to get there. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there was one that I was totally missing. I'm like, what is wrong with me? Um, Yeah, that that's 
one of my favorites. And he's not even he funny, has well, yeah. he's not supposed to be the funny one in that. I mean, John Candy is, and he's mm-hmm. but he's really funny as a straight man in that. And he has you know some like the memorable rant at the the car rental yes. counter. I still think of that every time we rent a car. <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> That's uh, like, well, we don't have your car here. We what kind of car do you want instead? <laughs> I reserved the car. What do you? <laughs> That's uh, Ed Rooney's secretary from Ferris Bueller's yeah, Day Off. Yeah, Edie McClurg, who was on all over his 80s, and she was on sitcoms and all that stuff. Yeah, she's great. One of, the, one of the great things about that scene is, of course, it's vulgar, but the reason it works is because the whole movie is it's clean the whole way through until yeah, that, just until that, that scene. Part, and he's, yeah, like, all of his frustration is coming to a boil in that one scene. Right. He can't take it anymore. He lets it out, and then course he kind of undermines himself and then she swears you know she was, she gets she gets the punchline at the she end it's the punchline too yeah so, well great. i think that i think today and that's i think the my negativity on today's screenwriters is like everything and i'm not trying to sound like a prude here but there there's so much vulgarity in the comedies today that that scene would be diluted today because they it, it would just kind of be lost in the shuffle it's true yeah if they're swearing the whole movie and then yeah you have like a, a rant in the middle it's it it loses it's it's power. I agree. Yeah. Right. It would almost be mean spirited as opposed to him being ex- exasperated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that's why it works is because he's kind of a pretty straight laced guy. Yeah. You know, from the Midwest. He's not really going to rock the boat. And then he just like blows up because he's yes. lost. He <laughs> <laughs> just can't all everything that's been going on. Yeah. I don't know. So, yeah, I think that's it's hard to pick between that and the Amigos and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. But that's a good top three, though. I think his best performance is probably Planes, Trains, and Automobiles of those three. But I think Three Amigos, I probably laughed the most in that one, maybe. I don't know. It's just, I mean, it's a really dumb movie, but it's <laughs> I just love it. No, it's a um, lot of fun. Yeah. And Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is just great. Um, mostly because it's like it's not just Martin, but it's like it's the whole cast. So and the writing really, is great. He really hasn't done much lately. I mean, he's pretty much. Yeah, I think yeah. he's been into his uh, banjo playing, his bluegrass. So <laughs> and he's really talented at that too. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't need the yeah. money. So <laughs> yeah, no, he can just yeah, he's kind of. He oh, we forgot one. There's one other one. Yeah, Parenthood. Oh right, right, Parenthood. And you know, yeah. I didn't like that one, and I, really? I have to revisit that. I didn't like it when I was a kid. It was okay. I think you may like it now. Now that you yeah, probably, <laughs> probably would have to rewatch that one. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I always loved it because the yeah. intro scene is uh, his son doing the diarrhea song and in, in the yes. car. <laughs> so, yeah. That was one part I did like. Yes, <laughs> and a great punchline in that too because uh, you know uh, Kevin, where did you hear that? I can't, Mom. Oh, that was money well spent. So. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> When you're sliding in the first and you're feeling something burst, diarrhea, diarrhea. <laughs> when you're sliding in the third and you're, well, you juicy turd, diarrhea, diarrhea. When you're sliding in the home and your shirts are full of foam, diarrhea, diarrhea. When you're sitting in your Chevy and your shirts are feeling heavy, diarrhea, diarrhea. Kevin, honey, where'd you learn that song? Last summer at camp, Mom. Ah, that was money well spent. When you're sliding in the first and you're feeling something first, diarrhea, diarrhea. Well, Brian, thank you so much for being on. This was a ton thank of you. fun. And yeah. uh, 
we definitely if you haven't seen it definitely check out dirty rotten scout yeah highly recommend it and i think i think it well when i saw it recently it was on youtube for free so you know nice. check out youtube might you might not have to watch a few ads but it was it was good worth your time well, i just reinvested and bought it uh the shout factory version on blu-ray and uh it looks great. So if you're if you're a film uh, film buff and you yeah if you can get it cheap or if you can get a nice copy of it yeah exactly sure. either way all right thanks Brian sure. thank you hey this is Brian Davis and you might know me from the damn good movie memories podcast and now get ready for the bad beat show on thatmetalstation.com from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday night. I'm going to play some kick-ass hard rock inspired by the blues, because after all, the foundation of all things rock and metal is, of course, the blues. So join me every Wednesday night for the bad beat, because even when you lose, you still win. We are officially on Spotify now, so if you don't use iTunes, if you don't use the Podbean app, you can go to Spotify and get all of our past episodes. You can stream it on there, so if you're a Spotify user, you can go find Damn Good Movie Memories. <laughs> I can't even say my own podcast. Damn Good Movie Memories. Yes, I know what I'm talking about. I'm the host, right? Okay, so go to Spotify, look for Damn Good Movie Memories. You can stream all of that stuff. And yeah, so if you don't want to use iTunes, you don't want to use Podbean, you can use Spotify as well. All right, before we sign off, we do have t-shirts are available for sale. All you have to do is go to tpublic, that's T-E-E-P-U-B-L-I-C.com, and you can get your very own Damn Good Movie Memories t-shirt. You can get all sizes, any gender, you can get whatever you want just at the tip of your fingers. So just go to tpublic.com, look up Damn Good Movie Memories, and you can get your very own t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast and are an iTunes user, please do the show a favor and head on over to the official iTunes page for damn good movie memories. Be sure to leave a rating and a review. This will allow the show to appear higher in the algorithm and spread the joy of this podcast to the masses. If you are not an iTunes user, you can still listen and subscribe on Podbean at damngoodmoviememories.podbean.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook under our Damn Good Movie Memories page. You can also listen to a limited number of episodes on YouTube. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and be sure to tune in next week for an all new episode of Damn Good Movie Memories. I am Dr. Fuck. And I'm the actual alcoholic. And we are part of the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. We are the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. That's right. And the way you can check us out is we are on iTunes and also Podbean. And we forgot a review recently. I got this review right here. It says right here, it says, Rock and Metal Combat Podcast is the greatest podcast in the world. And it's my number one podcast signed by Science. Now, and then Science also says... Science! Science also said... My second favorite podcast is It Doesn't Matter, The Rest Suck. Rock and Metal Combat Podcast on iTunes and Poppy. Check it out. Science!